Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss tax-advantaged investment strategies to help you grow your wealth. From commodities to real estate, private equity, agribusiness, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens. And today we're going to be talking about Grub Properties and essential housing and their incredible backstory that I think is, is super interesting if you haven't heard it before. And joining me today, I have James Holloman, who's the VP of Capital Formation at Grub. James, welcome to the show. My pleasure, Andy. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And you know, it, I just want to dive right in. I, I, I got some notes off the Grub website. Uh, I love the tagline on your all homepage. I'm sure it's all through your brochures. Perspective starts with principle. Um, and I just, I think it's an incredible backstory. And, you know, as, as a comic book guy, it's almost like Peter Parker and Spider-Man, right? Like every, every good comic book has a great backstory. Um, but I, I just want to read this and then ask you about it. So quote, beginning in 1963, Grub Properties built our company on principle and took a different approach to real estate by creating housing for those who had been redlined from home ownership through banks practicing a form of loan discrimination. Today, we continue to deliver essential housing for the underserved with highly strategic investing, development, leasing, and property management through our Link Apartments brand. In fact, Grub Properties may be one of the only companies in the country to focus solely on this critical market sector offering excellent quality of life for our tenants, improvements to our communities and outstanding returns for our investors, end quote. And I like that last part about outstanding returns as well. Um, but I, I just, again, I think this story is really inspiring and it's obviously a part of your company's history. Could you flesh this out a little bit and tell us more about the early history of Grub Properties and, and how this became you know, your, your niche? Absolutely. Um, so our current CEO, Clay Grubb, took over in 2002 from his father, Bob, um, who started this company uh, in 1963, as you stated. Um, and when Bob started it out, he was more of a single family residential home developer here in Lexington, North Carolina, and, um, you know, saw a need in the market. You know, he was um, concerned and, you know, didn't really agree with the practice of redlining and what banks were doing within that time frame to shut certain demographics out of the system and 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 really you know discourage them from home ownership and that first step up in, in upward mobility and their chance to build wealth. I think that you know Clay's dad you know saw a need for that then um, and essentially started a not-for-profit finance arm to his real estate development company that would go out and get loans from commercial banks and then at no cost, no markup, provide those loans to individuals within these communities who would then in turn develop a home with him. And it fed his development business, but really it, it helped frame that do good while doing well model before it, anyone ever mentioned that term, right? Or that phrase ever become catchy. You know, you know impact and providing impact into communities that we operate Right. You can you can do good with these investments and still provide impact. Right. And I think that that frame of mind has always been present within Grub Properties. We've had different strategies throughout the years based off whatever opportunity we saw in the current market environment. But our principles and what we fell back to always centered around building communities and helping those in those communities. And today, um, our current strategy in the development of our internal brand of multifamily housing called Link Apartments, uh, we framed this as essential housing, as, as, you, as you've stated. And this is really a new type of property type that we're trying to coin within the multifamily marketplace. And so, you know, it's not workforce housing. It's not, you know, class A luxury housing. It's not affordable housing. It's right there in the middle. It's, it's catered towards that moderate income earner, mm -hmm. um, you know, that young working professional that wants to position themselves in that live, work, play environment near a transit oriented location next to where they like to have fun, go to school, go to work, 
but at a moderate price point. And, and you find that really rare uh, in today's market. You know, most, you know, class A multifamily that you've seen developed over the past two decades is catering towards those that represent the top area median income class, right? Mm -hmm. 140% area median income or above. Affordable housing essentially is 60% area median income or below. Where's the middle? Where the majority of us fall, right? It's the moderate income earner and the inventory that's been added hasn't really catered to those individuals from, you know, just a share economic perspective. They can't afford the new inventory that's being put in these marketplaces. They can't afford a new home in most cases. I mean, the average home park price today nationally rests right above $400,000. That comes at a time to where 80% of millennials make less than $50,000 a year. Mm -hmm. They don't qualify for these high-end apartments. They don't qualify yeah, and, for a home, but they also don't qualify for affordable housing. So yeah. where's the give? Well, and that, that, that has what you just mentioned there, you know, in the stat on millennials, I think people underestimate how much of an effect that even has on our society, like on, on family formation and other metrics, probably outside the scope of, of our conversation. But, you know, you kind of alluded to this nationwide housing shortage. And I always quote the 5 million housing unit, you know, statistic. Um, sure. I've, I've heard some other numbers, so maybe it's 5 million, maybe it's 6 million. It, maybe it's more than that, to be honest with you. Um, but could we talk a little bit about that housing unit shortage? I mean, are there, yeah. are there factors that people overlook? Uh, you, you know, like what, what's causing that, I guess, <laughs> most simply stated, what's causing that? Sure. Um, you know, several factors are causing it, you know, especially depending on the market, right? There are different factors in different markets. Um, but, you know, from a macro perspective, you know, the, the main problem here is that we're still not adding enough new supply to keep up with existing demand, mm -hmm. right? And so peak births, the peak birth rate in the United States occurred in 2007, right? And so those individuals born in that year will start flooding the workplace in the early 2030s, give or take. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see an ever increasing need of new supply up until that point, right? That's just with general demographic growth. You're not mm -hmm. considering immigration trends. You're not considering, you know, uh, trends from people going from tier one markets into tier two markets in some cases. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, you know, it's really going to be a stressful housing environment for the next decade, right? And in certain conditions, you can't build enough inventory in some of these markets if you're targeting the right price point, right? And so, yeah, I think, you know, in some markets, you know, where you continue to see, you know, double class A, you know, apartments that are, you know, trying to win the amenity war and, and, and really you know, uh, attract people through that type of, you know, market, I think it's, a, it's overplayed. You know, we don't need more of that, in my opinion, right now. What we need are, are units that have amenities, base need amenities, mm -hmm. gyms, pools, you know, those types of things, but don't overstretch it, um, that are well-positioned in transit-oriented environments so people can let go of a car if they choose or need to, Right. And, um, you know, allow that moderate income earner a chance to live in these areas that they work in, right? Because we find that a lot of people are commuting extreme amounts, you know, to get to their workplace and, and look, that's no way to live. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's uh, like the, the cop or the firefighter who lives in Chicago or New York City. What are they going to uh, do? You, you, you shouldn't have to commute an hour to, to work, you know, in those sorts of um middle-class uh, right. jobs that, uh, you know, I, based on what, you know, you're talking about that 60 to 140% of area median income target, I would think every mayor in the United States of America would be calling Grub and saying, what kind of incentives can we give you to, to, to come build here? Because I think you're right. It's, it's like a, a sandwich. It's, it's, you have developers chasing that luxury segment where, you know, potentially there's a higher profit margin, at least if, if the timing is good, depending <laughs> on the timing. Right. And then, and then you also have, you know, low cost housing. A lot of times there's government subsidies and things for that, but, but the biggest area of demand is, is in the middle. Um, 
yeah. you know, do you find that local governments are, are, you know, are they more of a help or a hindrance? I mean, do, yeah. do you get the call from, you know, the call from the mayor saying, how can we get grub to, to build in our city? You know, I think that, you know, our executive team and Clay and the guys have great relationships in the markets that we operate in and the communities that we engage with are very supportive of our projects and the inventory that we're looking to add to these markets. But they're cautious. Right. And, and they should be, um, you know, and, and certain municipalities have different views about how to address the housing affordability crisis that we find ourselves in, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think that once um, someone understands our product and our price point and what we can add to their municipality, we get a lot of partnership, right? Yeah. And we do get a lot of abatements and subsidies, and we do work with a lot of programs that help us bring even more attractive investment returns, you know, to our investors. One, one that kind of jumps to my head immediately is, is a, you know, out of New York. Um, you know, specifically, New York just ended a program called the 421A Affordable New York Program. That was essentially a program put into place to inspire development through the downturn of COVID. When we started to see a lot of development flee that area, you know, the local, you know, government leaders decided that, you know, that was terrible. You're not keeping up with new inventory coming to meet the supply demands. And so, you know, they, they initiated the 421A Affordable New York program, which is a 35-year partial property tax abatement. Wow. And, and so, look, I mean, we're doing a deal in Long Island City on top of the Queens Plaza train station. We're doing another deal just down the street from One World Trade in Fidei on Carlisle. They're both being done through this 421A Affordable New York program. And we recently did a net present value on our Long Island City deal to, to see what the incentive was, was worth today. It's more lucrative than the land cost, right? And so governments see a need for more inventory as well. And, um, you know, how they go about getting that inventory and the controls they have around that inventory, you know, depends on market. But, you know, I think with what we're looking to do and how we're doing it, uh, we come in as a, a, a great actor right? Especially within opportunities on communities, right? And um, yeah, we're getting a lot of buy-in, tax incentives, and, and participation in our deals from community leaders. So yeah, a couple things there I want to touch on. So you mentioned some of the, the tax abatements or tax incentives you're receiving. So do you have some opportunity zone projects that have additional tax incentives? So you, are you basically talking about stacking those tax incentives on top of each other? Well, you know, with an opportunity zone, what's interesting is that the real estate developer themselves receives no tax incentive for an opportunity zone investment. Who right. receives the incentive is the investor in that qualified opportunity fund. Mm -hmm. But within that qualified opportunity fund, we have individual properties that have tax incentives associated with them. Okay. So the fund will benefit from a tax incentive, tax abatement, brownfields agreement, whatever it may be really interesting form of financing. Mm -hmm. um, but then secondarily, right, the investor will benefit from the tax appreciation on the OZ investment. So it's that's an interesting approach because, you know, I've talked with several sponsors lately who have basically, you know, they basically have a strategy of, you know, I heard one of them refer to it as the smile states mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, the sunbelt, wh whatever you want to call it. It seems like a lot of developers, a lot of sponsors, um, you know, are kind of moving to where a lot of the migration is, you know, to those smile states, yeah. uh, which makes sense. I think it's, you know, lower regulation. It's a lot of times it's more friendly, more developer friendly business climate. Um, it, it sounds like you guys are almost running in the opposite direction. Um, is that the case or are you just more diversified, uh, you know, across all 50 states? We're, we're more diversified. You know, we really take a double pronged approach, but we most certainly saw opportunity and started to go against the grain very early in 2020, you know, in regards to addressing tier one market dislocation, mm -hmm. right? And if you're looking at Southern California, LA, the Bay, uh, New York, uh, and the surrounding boroughs, DC, you know, all, all those markets at the beginning of COVID got smacked, right? And, and they took a pretty severe downturn rather quickly, which 
you know, pretty much all throughout 2020 went down. Uh, but at the beginning of 2021, you saw the V-shaped recovery begin. And each of those markets are now past where they were from a pre-pandemic rent rate perspective. Mm -hmm. It's more expensive in every single one of those markets. Wait, so you're telling me New York City didn't just didn't just die? Um. <laughs> you would think, you know, you know, most people's sentiment is that it, 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 you know, can't believe that it didn't or believe that it will. But, you know, go spend yeah. some time in New York, go spend some time in the Bay. You know, it's not going anywhere. You know, it's it, it may adjust from a pricing perspective, but. You're always going to want to have, you know, companies in Silicon Valley next to Stanford University and that environment's not changing. OK, and so there's tremendous opportunities still there. Um, it's already the thesis for that has already came true. You know, we're, we're already past where we were in 2019 in these markets. But, you know, for us, we had been eyeing these markets for quite some time because we love how resilient historically they have been. Mm -hmm. Right. In the face of in the face of a downturn. And, yeah. you know, we, we just you know, this is all these are also markets in which our moderate price product is so desperately needed. Right. Where else is a moderate price product needed other than Palo Alto? Right. Where the area median home price is three point one million today plus. Mm -hmm. Right. It was just too expensive for us to go into those markets and make a good investment, because at the end of the day, you need to do good while doing well. Right. Yep. And if we're paying too much for land or a value add asset, it doesn't make sense for us. We can't well, yeah, yeah. At price point. Hold, hold that thought for a sec, because I, I think I think I know where you're going. And I wanted to ask you about uh, your white paper. Right. So so hold that train of thought. Um, and by the way, for our readers and listeners, uh, I'll include a link to that white paper in our show notes. Um, but the white paper mentioned that the lockdowns of 2020 and 2021 created, quote, a unique opportunity for developers to enter resilient markets at a discount as people temporarily shifted from high density cities to lower density cities. Yeah. And the short term shift in demand for housing created buying opportunities for sites in these dense markets, lowering the cost and availability of one of the most critical inputs which is land, end quote. Yeah. Um, that really, that kind of caught my attention. And I, I wanted to ask you about that quote in, in that white paper. So it sounds like Grubb was, was basically ready and, and, and wanted to enter some of these markets and basically you, you bided your time. So how did you take advantage of, of that opportunity of, of the last couple of years? Right. So we were watching it closely before you know, the dislocation began and developing partners in these markets to help us enter them. Right. I mean, we're a vertically integrated real estate development company. You know, we take pride in having these specialists in-house and we recognize the value of partnering with other developers and coming together on deals and, and helping, you know, um, you know, just broaden our relationships in the given markets that we're looking to go into. And so it's not like we went in blindly. You know, we had been stress testing these markets and developing those relationships for decades. Um, and when we saw this pricing opportunity, we jumped. Um, you know, and I, I, I give it to our CEO, Clay, like for him to have the foresight, right? And, and, you know, the intestinal fortitude to swallow that and go head first right in the middle of COVID, right when it began. Um, wow. I mean, what a guy. Um, you know, I've, I've loved watching this kind of unfold. And at first, even myself, I'm like, whoa, you know, here we go. You know, this is, this is it, you know, this is it, we're going to go. And, yeah. you know, man, it, it really, the thesis played off, you know, quicker than I could have ever imagined and continues to do well for us. But now what we have are portfolios full of these assets that come at a very attractive cost basis. Mm -hmm. Some of which have extreme tax incentives, you know, tied to them. Sure. And we've recovered that market before we ever developed one of them. They're all in development. We've not even stabilized one of these assets yet to catch this market demand. Right. And we're all but, they're all sitting in the money already, essentially, we're, probably I mean, pretty some deep. of these assets we've already made a tremendous amount on just because yeah. of the land acquisition. Sure. Wow. So. But yeah. this comes at a time, Andy, that. We're taking a double pronged approach and you see it in our portfolios to where we're not letting go of where we've been successful. We're still executing on deals in the Southeast and filling our portfolios with them as well. But you're also starting to see that opportunistic trend towards tier one markets 
to take advantage of that opportunity when we saw it. And we're still executing on that pipeline. So um, with, uh, with, with uh, essential housing, like with Link Apartments, with this, um, you know, the 60% to 140% median income type housing, I mean, you're, you're right. That's, that's needed nationwide. That's needed in New York City and San Francisco, it's, but it's also needed in, in Denver and Austin and Houston and Atlanta. I mean, just, absolutely. It's, it's just needed uh, nationwide. You know, you've, you've talked about a lot of the, the tailwinds. Um, I, I do want to ask, I mean, I think at least, at least from what I have heard, you know, a lot of the appeal of creating the luxury apartments, luxury multifamily, as well as, you know, any kind of luxury housing is in that pricing power, the higher profit margins. And especially like, like back in 2021, you know, when the price of lumber was, was shooting up, um, just a lot of developers and sponsors, they kind of wanted that, you know, margin of safety, whatever you want to call it, where if you're building class A or luxury housing, you have a little more margin to absorb potentially higher inflation, potentially higher labor costs, you know? So if you're, if your model ends up being like, wow, our costs are actually coming in higher than what we modeled for, maybe rent revenue is going to come in higher as well. But it would seem to me you'd have a little bit less, you know, room to maneuver, a little bit less uh, room in the model at, at this uh, lower cost housing. Is, is that the case? I mean, how, how, I guess, have you weathered this higher inflation? Is it, is it a worse issue with labor? Is it, is it a more significant issue with materials? Or is it just not a concern at all? Because, <laughs> you know, because the rent growth has outpaced it. So it almost is a wash. Rent growth has outpaced it. I mean, you know, that's that's definitely true, but how long can that sustain itself, right? And where we're positioned at in the market at that moderate price point, I like to, you know, kind of frame our product as a, a light luxury model. You know, with, with Link Apartments, it's class A, it's, it's amenitized, it's in that live, work, play environment. You know, we're just efficient in how we design it, we're creative in how we get to the development for it, right? And so I like to say, you know, with what we're looking to approach in these markets, we're not looking to be the cheapest product in market. We're looking to be a little bit cheaper than the rest of the class A market, mm -hmm. right? And if we can undercut somebody building right across the street from us, we're going to lease up faster and we're going to keep our tenants longer, right? And if we do see a point to where there become more renters by necessity and less renters by choice, a distressed environment, mm -hmm. we're going to capture a lot of that falling inventory, a lot of those falling tenants, that are looking to cut cost from their double class A luxury multifamily asset that's got a golf simulator in the basement to more of a middle of the road class A still gives them everything they want and need, but not any of the excess, right? And so that's Link Apartments, um, still giving our tenants everything they want and need, where they wanna be, um, at a little bit of a reduced cost, two to $500 a month, depending on the unit, depending on the market. But like you said, for the, for the fireman, for the police officer, the teacher, the nurse, that's who I like to frame our product for mm -hmm. the nurse, you know, these other double class, a, you know, developers are catering towards doctors We're catering towards nurses. There are a lot more nurses, right? And so from that perspective and just catching tenants that might migrate downward in the case of a recessionary environment or if rental rates continue to go up. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we're very well positioned. Um, and when you look at, you know, construction costs and things of that nature, just inflation generally, you know, we've been dealing with that for quite some time in our business, right? That's not yeah. recent news. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, you know, we, we are dealing with that as any other, you know, multifamily or real estate developer would deal with that. But, I think our vertical integration does help us to a certain extent. Um, we have an in-house finance team. You know, we have in-house development teams that are you know, more or less commodity traders that are going to buy certain things in dips based off our projected future development, which is easier for us to project because within Link Apartments, we only have six unit floor plans. Most of our competitors will have at least 30 in a given development. I've toured some sites that have 70. So right? that keeps that keeps costs. It keeps it so tight. It's like yeah. Lego blocks. We just look at a development site and say, okay, how can we stack these Lego blocks to maximize the space here? Drive up what we take in per square foot. Sure. 
but reduce what we're charging per month. And oftentimes, Andy, you'll find that in comparison, you know, to other comps near us, we will take in more per square foot than they do, but they're charging more per month. Mm. Right. And I have never met a tenant that has come into an apartment and asked, how much am I paying per square foot? No, they don't care. They want to know what is my monthly cost? Does this give me everything I want and need? Is it where I want to be? Mm -hmm. And it's cheaper than that option. How much cheaper? All day. Yeah, right? I, I might ask about number of bathrooms, number of bedrooms, but <laughs> I think you're exactly right. I'm not asking price per square price foot. Per square foot. No, yeah. not. And the, even, even our smallest. Okay, so we have two studios, two one bedrooms, and two two bedrooms in our model. Mm -hmm. Even our smallest studio has walk-in closet, full bank of drawers in the bathroom, right? European cabinets, stainless steel appliances, granite countertops. It's well-positioned, transit-oriented location, right? And we're just cutting some of that wasted space and some of that excess cost to get there. We're, we're attracting people from an economic standpoint rather than from excess. Understood. So with the Link Apartments brand, you know, y'all own all of these assets across the country or, or they're owned by your funds. Do you, does, does Grub ever uh, exit or sell any of these assets or is the plan to essentially grow this brand and grow this collection of assets, you know, indefinitely? I, I guess what's, what's that look like 20 years from now uh, with all of these assets? It's a great question. And, and one that separates a lot, you know, us a lot from our competitors. We've always been long-term holders of Link Apartment assets. You know, this internal strategy of Link Apartments began in 2012. The, the first development site we approached is in the Manchester neighborhood of Richmond, Virginia. It's in an opportunity zone today. We still own and manage that property, along with every other Link Apartment project that we've bought or built thereafter. This is not a value-add strategy. It's a raw development strategy, mainly because we can't buy a building and convert it into this efficient form of style that allows right. us to get to the moderate price point. Right. And so, especially yeah. in, t in today's environment where, you know, even with this higher inflation, you can potentially build below replacement costs. So I think that would be more true than ever in 20. Well, also, when you look at, you know, repositioning value add multifamily, what are you really doing there? You're taking basically moderate priced existing inventory and turning it into double classic. Right. That's that's the pitch there. You cut costs there after you flip it and you move on. Mm -hmm. And and then, you know, so goes the property for us. You know, it's it's not like that at all. We're looking to add new inventory to these markets that are moderately priced. Right. And help address the supply issue that we have. That's what we need more of, you know, but also like the value add game in the smile states, like you referred to them as is incredible incredibly expensive right now. I mean, we've, we've not always been a straight development company and we never will be a straight anything. We stay opportunistic. If there's a value add office building that could lead to a multifamily development through a, through a re-entitlement process and, and densifying that land through a rezone, we'll do that. We're very opportunistic in that regard. But one thing that we're really you know, shying away from right now is paying too much for existing inventory, mm -hmm. right? And you see it all over the place. We had a, a prior portfolio called Sterling, which was a workforce housing value add strategy that we started to execute on out of the last cycle, 2008, 2009, that we recently sold as a portfolio sell. We had seven remaining assets in that portfolio that we sold at the end of 2021. We received over $50 million more than what we had these assets internally booked at through that disposition. That's how hot this market is right now. And our funds, our flagship funds, two, three, and four that housed those sterling properties, all are now above a 3X net equity multiple. Our fund three is at a 3.69. Wow. So look, you know, we're going to be opportunistic. We're going to take advantage of the current market environment, and we're not going to shift because of some new trend or tax incentive. That's mm -hmm. one huge point about opportunity zones is that we had zero deviation of strategy to address them. We were always long-term holders of those assets. And we recognize 40% of our current portfolio fell in Opportunity Zone census tracks when they were identified. Mm -hmm. And so for us, you know, whether you're investing in our flagship fund offering or our opportunity fund offering, it's the same strategy. 
in the same markets in different census tracts, right? It's, it's really a different way for us to raise capital. And at the end of the day, if we get a property through investment committee, it gets approved and it, and it falls in an opportunity zone, the opportunity fund gets first right of refusal at that asset. And if it should pass, it can go to our flagship funds. Right on. So actually, I want to talk about the different fund offerings you have. So I understand that, you know, the opportunity zone wrapper, I mean, that one is, is um, pretty clear cut, right? So either a project is in a census tract that is designated as an opportunity zone or it's, it's not. And if it is, and, and you're going to do ground up development there, um, you'd almost be silly not to structure it as an opportunity zone project, you know, with, with a certain couple assumptions aside. Um, so, so I saw from your website, you have several open funds right now. So there are a couple of, of closed end funds, I think, as, as well as a private REIT. Um, could you talk a little bit about the different fund wrappers or, yeah. or why certain projects might go into one fund wrapper or another, or maybe, yeah. maybe which type of fund wrapper might be appropriate for one type of investor versus another type of investor? Yeah. 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 Thanks for asking that. Um, you know, so with our flagship funds, we are a typical LP structured fund, you know, clients receive a K1. It's a commingled fund structure closed in, you know, right now with fund seven, we're 85% called in, you know, likely we'll call the remaining 15%, you know, in the next 12 months, you know, and then put that money to work over a seven year term. Right. And then we'll liquidate thereafter. Um, the Qualified Opportunity Fund program, we chose a different route for various reasons. Um, and we found that to be very compelling when raising capital in the space. I mean, our Opportunity Fund today is a $400 million vehicle uh, with 19 total properties you know, scattered around the nation in select tier one and tier two markets. And we work with over 60 private wealth managers with that product who take it to their clients and who have all vetted the product, the structure, everything. But from a very high level, um, the private reach structure within Opportunity Zone Investment allowed us to retain our strategy, right? And a, and a huge portion of that is, you know, within a- oh, so, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. So the private REIT is your Opportunity Zone Fund. Your Opportunity Zone Fund is structured as a private REIT. Okay. That's right. Yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, and from a high level, you know, step one, you know, when deciding to choose the private REIT, it was really about retaining the flexibility in, you know, if we ran into a disposition, um, you know, the structure allows us to, okay, so breaking down a scenario, um, a bread and butter strategy of ours is to approach value add mid-rise office building, like I said in right now, um, with the intent of rezoning the property, chopping up the parking lot, the office sets on, you know, getting the zoning rights to, to make it mixed use, build a parking deck where that parking lot was, wrap that parking deck with link apartment units, and then share the parking between the office and multifamily. There's a ton of synergy there, right? And essentially, we're getting the land for free to build the multifamily on because we're winning it through the entitlement process, mm -hmm. right? But in a transaction like that, which we've already executed on this within our opportunity fund, in a transaction like that, once we uplift the office building, you know, late 70s, early 80s, you know, vintage office here in Charlotte, as an example, um, and we lease it up, we modernize it, we're typically going to look to sell it if the market opportunity is right, because we've you know, executed these long-term leases. There's a huge duration of time now before tenant improvement cost and more leases come due. That property is of its most value to us at that point and least amount of risk. And so we'll look to offload it. If, if we were a typical LP structure, you know, and we ran into a scenario like this within our opportunity fund, the only option that we would have to avoid a taxable event to our investors would be a 1031 exchange, mm -hmm. right? And a 1031 exchange in an opportunity zone can get hairy, right? That's not something we want to present as a risk to the portfolio. And we don't want to limit on our execution because we're afraid of that scenario. We want to execute as we've always executed. The private REIT basically allows us, if we run into that you know, scenario, to pay the taxes on the disposition of the office at the operating business level from within the private REIT, which essentially sets between the, the REIT and the investor, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of like a buffer. And um, recycle proceeds back into the fund after those taxes have been paid, corporate level tax, and make new investments, make accelerated debt payments, whatever's opportunistic at that time, trying to amplify the back end multiple of the opportunity fund. 
So then, so your LPs, then the investment from their end is still treated as that 10 year hold that yeah. qualifies for the, the tax-free capital gain coming out the back door after 10 years, yeah. but that frees up you all at the operating at, at the, at the management sponsor operating business level to, to basically be better capital allocators to free you up, to make whatever decisions you feel opportunistically make sense. Like, yeah, you might need to eat some tax liability, pay some taxes, but ultimately it's, it's better to have that freedom. So you get, you get the freedom on, on your end as the manager and the investors still get that, um, the 10 year tax benefit, which, which by the way, is an incredible or more or more. There's a key, key comment there, but yeah, you know, essentially that's our bread and butter strategy. I mean, we're killing it when we can approach an office and get to a multifamily development opportunity. We don't want to limit our opportunity fund to not be able to address those opportunities. Private REIT made sense from that perspective, but more, more, it allows us to internalize depreciation. And we thought this was extremely powerful because you know, with an opportunity fund investment, the true value in it is the tax-free appreciation over time and the back-end tax-free multiple and invested capital, mm-hmm. right? I see way too many investors approaching opportunity zones thinking about income generation. Because let me tell you, for every dollar of income that comes out of that fund, it's taxable during the fund's life as net income distribution. Right. That's one less dollar that you're going to get on the back end of tax-free appreciation. Yes, it's a zero tax benefit whatsoever to the operating income, right? Zero, right? Yeah. You're just you're just reducing your tax appreciated multiple on the back end every dollar that comes out taxable. I mean, so the ideal investment would be weighted between the income and capital gain. It'd be all capital gain. If you could, if you could achieve that, absolutely. Um, the private REIT allows us to internalize depreciation with the intent of offsetting those net income distributions recycling that capital back into the fund to make accelerated debt payments treated as working capital. Right. And so, yeah, you know, that's our thought, you know, we have a two and a half X multiple in mind for our fund at a 10 year duration. We want as much of that two and a half X to come out at 10 years or after as possible. Mm -hmm. Right. And so even when properties start to stabilize in our 19 unit portfolio or a 19 property portfolio, like, you know, the first one will probably stabilize next year. It'll become cash flowing, but we'll offset that cash flow with depreciation intentionally limiting or hopefully, you know, eliminating all cash flow until we get to a point in which enough of the portfolio is online and cash flowing that it outweighs the amount of depreciation that we're generating. That'll take several years. That'll that'll happen around the time deferred tax obli- you know, obligations come due. Right. And even at that time, we'll still keep dampening net income distributions with depreciation. Mm -hmm. We just won't be able to offset at all when everything is online. And at a certain point in time, investors will get a one to four percent per annum distribution, depending on where we are in the fund's life, give or take. Um, You know, so that's still less than what you see from other types of funds. But look, I get it. You know, some investors do want that income. They don't want to, you know, throw it in for 10 years and not look at it. I get it. But I'll say this, you know you're doing yourself a disservice, you know, within the opportunity zone program, take full advantage of the back end growth because that's the true, the true value here. Yeah. I mean, Um, if if you want current income, um, go buy B opportunity zone fund is the wrong, it's the wrong product type to to be looking at. You know, I would say, and you know, I, I think that the market for opportunity zone funds, um, we had DJ Van Curen on the show. He's family office guy. And, and he yeah. called it patient capital. And I think that's exactly right. Cause it's more, it, it could be self-directed high net worth investor. It could be institutional, uh, it could be a family office, uh, but you have to be patient. You know, if, if, if you need the cash in 24 months, don't put it in an opportunity. Fund. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that, you know, but. Sure. That's not the best route for you though. And look, a private REIT is not the best route for everyone. Um, you know, there are certain real estate investors who are very depreciation needy. Right. And look, they want that pass through depreciation on their investment. But what I would say to it is the depreciation doesn't vanish. We're actively in managing depreciation internally within our operating business and maximizing the value of the fund for our investors, not requiring them to balance their entire financial situation externally of the fund with the depreciation that, that we kick out. Right. And but look, there's an investor for each you know, fund structure. Um, 
one thing that I have found of value for high net worth investors within the private REIT structure is its ease of use, right? One thing about alternative investments is they can get quite complicated, especially for someone addressing it, maybe for the first, second, third time. The private REIT, I like to frame as a turnkey solution to addressing the Opportunity Zone tax incentive, right? We call capital every month, 100% upfront. It goes to work directly into the private REIT and you know there they are. And they never receive a state level K one, right? That's extremely powerful because wow, I didn't I didn't know that. That's uh, because I think well, here's a lot why of this our... is so important. It's important because it's easier to use, and nobody likes receiving ten state level K ones. Right, but it's exceptionally especially important. because you all are diversified. So, um, with the diversified fund, I mean that can turn into a real nightmare if you have projects. It can turn into a nightmare. It can turn into a cost burden. But here's the the real risk within opportunity zones that no one talks about. There are non-conforming states. Mm -hmm. If you have a fund that is commingled and structured as an LP, and you're an investor in California, North Carolina, any of these non-conforming states, and you get issued a K-1 from those states, guess what you're going to owe at the end of the day? State-level capital gain taxes. Mm -hmm. Our private REIT and the 1099 structure is separates investors from that. The only state that they have to be concerned about is the one in which they reside. Sure. And so it's easier to use. There's no K-1s. That turnkey solution, instant access to a 19 property portfolio diversified across the nation in different market segments. Very interesting as well, because our 2019 qualified opportunity fund set looks very different from our 2020 and 2021 set. But together, yeah, it's just a great portfolio because you see a lot of Southeast exposure in 2019, but the Southeast was not affected by COVID's downturn. It right. was a continual increase, right? And so it's a nice balanced portfolio of both growth markets and resilient markets addressed in opportunistic times. So is your OZ fund still open to new investors? Yeah, and it will be through the end of next year. Um, I like I mean, what, what's 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 the minimum investment? Like, could you talk about your your capital base a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, we work with again about sixty private wealth firms that take this product to their clients, and I think somewhere around nine hundred um, individual investors uh, that okay. invest directly with us. And you know, uh, we're happy to accommodate one hundred thousand dollar minimum investments. And, sure. and I love that. My background was coming from a feeder fund within a major private wealth organization to where I raised capital for you know hedge funds, private equity funds, you know, managed futures, private real estate, all across the spectrum. Some of those investment managers required five million dollars to go direct. You know, before the feeder fund craze, you know, kicked in, high net worth investors had no access to this types of these types of asset classes. You know, so for a vertically integrated real estate developer, that gives you access to the asset as close as you can get it other than doing it yourself at a hundred thousand dollar minimum that is a great addition to your portfolio right yeah and especially with the with the diversity um of of assets in all the states that you all work in so i would think you know a lot of times like institutionals um and ultra high net worth you know you'll see an allocation to alts 20 percent, 25 heck 30 35%. I think now we're starting to see, you know, the mass affluent or, you know, the, the quote everyday accredited investor, there's just an increased interest in alts. Um, I, I think from high net worth, self-directed and, and on up and, and it's certainly gonna continue to grow. It's going to continue to grow. More wealth advisors are going to continue to adopt. Right. And, um, it's wonderful. This is what should be happening. Investors should have always had access to these asset classes and various types of vehicles. And I think it's, I think it's great. And I want to be part of it, you know, but what I would say is that be careful, you know, be careful with the type of manager that you're working with. You know, there are a lot of what we call allocator funds out there that are not the specialist in the given class. Mm -hmm. They're financial professionals that make an investment fund that then go and allocate to the professionals doing the actual deals. Right. We are those professionals. And what you'll find is that there are multiple layers of fees that are introduced there. Of One course. that's very prominent in, in real estate are acquisition and disposition fees. And they're not going to show this on the asset management fee inside your presentation deck. They're going to show it within the private placement memorandum. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be hard to find. And when you look in our private placement. But, but, but deck, James, most investors read the PPM, you know, 
every word religiously all 455 pages right right like control find acquisition fee control okay. find disposition fee look at this <laughs> um and i'm telling you if you look at our ppms what you're going to find is beside of all of those it's going to say none because we're the people that are on the ground we're the specialists doing this and investors can come to us direct and not have to go through these middlemen they don't have to go to a financial advisor that's going to charge them one percent they don't have to go to an allocator that's going to charge fees they've never heard of their own carried interest fee and their own asset management fee above what the real estate developer is charging. Look, this is the purest way to address it other than doing it yourself. Yeah. And, you know, and, and talking with investors and advisors, I think that vertical integration model, it holds a lot of appeal because I, I mean, I, so I hate to say it, but at the end of the day, this is housing, right? I mean, in a way, you know, there's differentiation, but at the end of the day, these are widgets, right? They're, they're housing widgets. Of course, you can differentiate them, but that's why we have class A, class B, workforce. We have this language um, because- Very it, defined buckets, it, very defined. It, it, exactly. And so there's a lot of value. You can create a lot of value just by setting up a lower cost structure. I mean, you see that in other industries, like why is Costco so successful? I mean, ultimately, you're getting the same product at Costco. Well, maybe the hot dog and the rotisserie chicken is better, but you know, you're getting the same Coca-Cola, the same brand of paper towels at Costco, but they have a lower cost structure, so they essentially, you know, pass that back to the consumer. And so, I think with you know, housing at the end of the day, it's 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 a business sector or industry, just like any other industry. So that vertically integrated model. Uh, and then, and then where you talk about, you know, housing units being like Legos, I think there's certain, certain investors or listeners or viewers today, they might hear that and be like totally turned off and like, that's fine. But I, I think there's another type of person who, you know, maybe they're an entrepreneur and they're like, I totally understand how in my sector, in my industry, that kind of efficiency is actually a core advantage. It leads to a better end product at a better price point. Um, and, and I don't want to cheapen our, our product by framing it as a Lego block. I mean, when I was first told about Link Apartments, when I was, you know, coming to Grub, I thought it was class B. I'm like, how are you getting to a moderate price point? And then I walked on a, on a project and I'm like, I would live here. This is fully class A. How are you guys doing this? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really through efficiency, eliminating wasted space. I like to describe it as a lean type of methodology. And these guys have been doing it for a long time and they know what they're doing. And, you know, in our 58 year history, I think this is a, a good fact. You're just talking about longevity of the company and getting better over time. We've never had a property level bankruptcy, deed and loot or foreclosure. And I think we've been through seven recessions now. Um, you know, recessions are an opportunity to take advantage of market dislocation. And if you're not overextended on your debt, right, if you're minding your leverage as you should be, um, you can take advantage of it. And that's where we positioned ourselves. And you know, took advantage of 2008, 2009, and we've taken advantage of the downturn that we saw briefly in 2020 in tier one markets. And we'll take advantage of the next one um, because we're not over levered. We have great overall duration in our portfolio. And in some cases, our financing terms add value in a rising rate environment or a distressed environment, one of which we're being led into. Um, you know, and I can give some examples there. You know, in our opportunity fund, we have a project in Winston-Salem, North Carolina called Fourth Street. Um, that has a HUD loan on it. And, and we, we use various forms of lending. Our in-house finance teams will work with insurance companies. They'll issue bond offerings. They'll go through organizations like HUD. But this, this HUD package we've used several times and I find it most attractive and really highlights how we can you know, add some inflation protected and security to a portfolio through our investments. Um, the HUD 221D4 program is what it's called. And it's a 42-year construction to permanent, fully assumable fixed rate loan product. And we locked in on this specific asset. We locked in 42 years at 3.99. Wow. And if we sell this property 20 years from now, yeah. the acquirer of the asset has to pay us the arbitrage value of assuming that 3.99 and then holding it for another 20 years. And we've sold a property that had one of these loans attached to it. It was in Raleigh a few years ago. Just from the assumption of the loan on the property sale, it brought $6 million to the sale for us. Wow. So look, 
you know, in a in rising rate environment, when over half of your stabilized portfolio is fixed and the average duration is 10 plus years and you start adding long products like that. Yeah. We welcome it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I just, I love hearing about that long-term vision, long-term duration, you know, the, the track record that Grub has. And, you know, that quote that I started with perspective starts with principle and, you know, we, kind of joking about, you know, 350 page PPMs. The truth is that, you know, most high net worth investors who are self-directed and frankly, even RIAs and financial planners, um, they're going to be time limited. And, you know, you probably don't have time to read every document with a fine tooth comb, you know, hopefully you employ a team of professionals, uh, specialists, whether you're an RIA and you have specialists that help you with due diligence or or whatnot. But to me, my big thing that I preach is you want to look for sponsors that have long track records and you know who know what know what they're good at and who have proven that out over time. And so I think you know the the grub backstory, you know, your your Peter Parker Spider-Man backstory, um, I think is 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 super inspiring. And I know we're short on time, um, but I wanted to remind our listeners that if you want links to all the resources that we discussed on today's episode, including uh, the white paper and links to the, the private REIT, uh, you can access our show notes at altsdb.com slash podcast. And I also want to remind you, don't forget to subscribe to our show on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform so that you never uh, miss our new episodes as we release them. James, thanks again for joining the show today. Bring me back again. I love this. Thank you so much, Andy. And you know, for anyone listening that'd like to have a conversation with me, you know, please feel free to reach out anytime. I'm, I'm always happy to engage with you. Oh, you know, James, and I, I forgot I have that in my notes. I, I asked that to every guest and uh, just got away from me. Where can our viewers and listeners go to learn more about Grub and about your funds? Absolutely. Grubproperties.com. Great starting place. It'll lead you, you know, down the rabbit hole for whatever fund you might want to engage with. And but at the end of the day, anybody that wants to pick up the phone and give me a shout or send me an email, I'm always happy. Sounds great. Thanks, James. Andy, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 